Listener Production. Howdy, you are listening to episode 99 of the Howie Games Part B, featuring the phenomenon that is Lauren Jackson. So, with Seattle, you won, did you win two titles with Seattle? Yep, 2004, 2010. It's real! It's real! And Donovan, the first ever female head coach to win the championship. Seattle is your WNBA champion! So you go there as a youngster, you win two titles, and um, it was really nice. You looked a little bit awkward, which I can understand now looking back, but when they retired your number, the number 15, you've had all these experiences. You were their franchise player. She was dominating. She was fearsome. She was the regular season MVP. She is the finals MVP. Congratulations to Lauren Jackson, MVP of the WNBA finals. What is that? mean to you and what does that organization mean to you and it's good to see you smiling when I ask you that oh well Seattle became my my home sort of you know like it it really did and the people there and the city itself just I bought I had a house over there um that sort of became especially like later on when I was playing in Russia and you know we had Australian commitments between seasons so I wasn't really at home in Australia at all that much I'd maybe get a week or two a year um and so Seattle was sort of my base. And um, the city itself, the franchise was incredible. It was uh, Howard Schultz was our owner. So he was the head of Starbucks or the owner of Starbucks for the first championship. Um, so, But then I think in 2006 or seven, the new ownership came through, which were four businesswomen from around the area. And um, look, they were amazing. They're amazing women. They still... Um, I think there's only three of them now involved any, at the at the moment, but they're just incredible people um, who, I guess, shone a, a lens on inequality and, and a lot of social issues as well. And so the the franchise sort of became um, something that people really valued and cherished. So it was, it's been great. As we get set to unveil the first retired jersey in Storm franchise history, number fifteen. I had a great time over there and then to be retired and honoured the way that I was, it was super special and, um, yeah, it's something that I will never forget and maybe one day I'll show my kids that. <laughs> I hope you do. What are your memories of uh, winning, winning those titles and being on court and celebrating and, and the way you're embraced by the city? McCautry and Little. She finds McCautry. McCautry takes a dribble with four seconds left, fires up a three, no good. Rebound Miller with one second left, kicks it back out to Coco, three at the buzzer. Because it's for those that haven't been to Seattle, it's it's almost more Canadian than American, as though I get. It's a bit more of a low key type of place. That was my feel there, anyway. What are your memories of that? Um, well, we we for both of them, we had massive ticker tape parades, so there were just thousands and thousands of people like supporting us, which is something that I mean, even when the Olympic um, parades came back to Australia, we wouldn't have even had half the people, you know, in Sydney um, that we had in Seattle supporting us. And the celebration um, was just, the celebrations were incredible. So uh, I definitely had a lot of experiences over there that were just, that would blow blow your mind, you know. And um, I really, I cherish every one of them though. It was a, it was a wonderful time. 
Blow my mind for me then. Blow your mind. Um, oh, look, even just going to restaurants. So we'd win a championship. We'd go to a restaurant like Metropolitan Grill, like Steakhouse or something like that, and they'd bring out Cristal Champagne for us, buy our dinner. Everywhere we went after we won that first championship, we would get free food, the best food, all through <laughs> Seattle. You know, um, We'd go to concerts because they used to have summer nights at the pier down there. And um, so, like, every week during summer they'd have great musicians come down and, yeah, we'd go backstage and just hang out with the artists. And, uh, like, it was that time of my life was so cool because I got to do stuff like that where I would never have been able to do that here. Um, But I remember Paul Kelly coming back to my apartment in Seattle and drinking green tea with me after one of his gigs. Like there was so many cool things that happened when I was playing and um, a lot of them are those things that I remember, not actually the, the playing part or the celebrating part. But, yeah, no, it was, it was good. Now you're going to get the question from my daughter because you've led me into it perfectly. Now you get my 10-year-old who is known as the pickle and, again, you'll see why I'm going to play this to you now. Um, you've handled the penguin. Now you get the pickle. You ready? Yep. Hi, Lauren. Pickle here. Last night, Dad and I watched you carry the flag at the London Olympics. Wow, that must have been so cool. If I was there, I would have loved to meet Usain Bolt, Sally Pearson, and of course you. Out of all the people that you've met, which one has impressed you the most? Out of all the people that I've met, I think the person that's impressed me the most would have been Meryl Streep. I met Meryl Streep at a function at in 2005 um, and there were a lot of other, like Matt Damon was there, um, Whoopi Goldberg was there. There was It was at the mayor's house. Um, Paul Simon was singing um, and she was lovely. She, she was lovely out of all the famous people. that were, Well, Matt Damon was really lovely too, but she was absolutely beautiful. And I'll never, ever forget her kindness because I was sitting in this room on my own. I had no one with me. Um, and I was like, why am I even here? I don't even deserve to be in, you know, a room like this. And just, again, blowing my mind. And um, she was so kind and she was asking me questions about my family, like she cared. And, I mean, she might not have cared, but the fact that she was even making, like, an effort to me was just the most beautiful, generous thing. And um, I just felt like I was about this big even though I was three times the size of every single person in that room. Um, but she really, yeah, she, that kindness, that really was something that, um, you know, I hope that, like, I can get better at throughout my life. That, that's, a, that's a great story, but you've just reeled off there. Meryl Streep, Matt Damon, Paul Simon. There was someone else you mentioned in there as well that's uh, fallen from my mind now. Did, when you're in a situation like that, do you think, how can I be here? Or does it just yes. become so constant that it's part of your life? No, that was the moment. I mean, there was there was a few times I was in, in rooms that were, you know, um, had some pretty impressive people in them. But that particular day I wasn't able to take anybody with me. So I was sitting there on my own on this round table, you know, at the New York mayor's house and I can't remember who the mayor was. It might have been Gianni. It could have been. Um Anyway, and and I was just thinking, why this is ridiculous? Like this, like the whole time I was sitting there thinking, you are, you're silly. Why are you even here? Like you don't belong here. 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, there were plenty of times like that. Um, but look, I, again, like I keep going back to, I'm a country kid, you know, I, that sort of stuff just overwhelmed me and panicked me to a point where I could not handle it. And, um, you know, it's the same with all-star games and things like that. Like whenever we had to sort of get all glitzed and glamoured up and be around people taking photos and looking pretty and I was just like, I, this is not me. Like I, I really struggled in those situations. So I think that, again, I, de- I definitely, like I said, I had a few internal battles throughout the uh, the time, the, the span of my career. Olympics. Mm-hmm. Three silver medals and a bronze medal? Yeah. What does that mean to you? Olympics? Uh, well, uh, would have loved to have got the gold, no doubt. But um, America, they're just, like I was saying, their athletes are just so incredible, you know. And I'm, uh, I'm not saying that it won't ever happen, that Australia won't ever beat them because they could. You know, Lizzie's an amazing athlete and she... Um, if she's got the right team around her, you, you never know what could happen. But the the depth that the Americans have because of their league, because of their, their culture, the basketball culture, um, and the NCAA, um, they just have, like, they probably could send three American teams over to the Olympics and probably get gold, silver and bronze, you know. So... It's it was hard. Uh, the first silver, I was elated. Second, I was like, yeah. Third, I was like, oh, this is. And I was really struggling by Beijing. And then London, we got the bronze, and it felt amazing because we'd actually won our last game. So it felt like we won the gold medal, yeah. you know. So it was. I really, yeah, I loved being at the Olympics. Um, the village was a bit overwhelming, but <laughs> lots of people. I, I will. I now, and I rarely do this on the show, I'm going to tell you a Lauren Jackson story now, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. So I was at the 2004 Athens Olympics with Channel 7 and I was sort of working, directing streams back to Australia and all sorts, but I I hadn't really done much reporting in that stage and I just really wanted to report on an Olympic event and it got to near the end of the Olympics and I think everyone was exhausted and I'd pestered the boss so much. He said, righto, go to the women's gold medal match and see how you go. So I watched you take on the USA and Lisa Leslie, um, and at halftime I thought, wow, this like you were right in the mix. So I think mm. the, I've written it down, 74-63. And my Olympic story with you is, you will not remember, I interviewed you directly after the game, and I also interviewed Lisa Leslie directly after the game. And we got through the first question. I'd love to see it back, and you smiled and you know, said we'd done our best. And it's interesting you said about you're a bit ah after the second silver medal because halfway through the second answer, it almost looked like you actually started to be really honest. And you, I, I just never seen anyone as shattered, I don't think, walking off a sporting event as you were then because your team had done everything and you were in it and it was the Americans and could you finally beat them? And I, I still remember it now clear as a day, Lauren, how devastated you were on your face. Yeah, well, you know, you train pretty hard and to get there and and to be an Olympian and um, so you know, grateful. Uh, just like I said, having the opportunity to play at that level, but you know, to really win a gold medal at the Olympics is the ultimate. And yeah, they just stood in our way. You know, um, I don't feel like I had a great game that game either, too. So I think that was disappointing. Um, and then. Yeah, it just, I think that 
that probably was one of our closest opportunities, you know, to get yeah. them. Um, we had a good run at them as well in, in uh, the semi-final in London. Um, Liz Cambridge in the first half was just couldn't could not be stopped, and then in the second half they just did everything in a power to sort of get under her skin and um, and yeah we. <laughs> We've had opportunities, but, you know, all in all, I think the depth of the American team um, had really, you know, we just couldn't compete with that. The other thing is too, I think with the Americans, you sort of got to get on top of them early. Like you have to jump on them early and try and get them into foul trouble. And we just never could, we couldn't do that. Like we could never get out on top of them early. Um, So anyway, you know, it is looking back, yeah, I was sad. I definitely was sad. A couple of those, uh, Beijing and Athens. But, um, yeah, it doesn't define my career or something that I wish I had done. But, yeah, it doesn't define sort of what happened or where I went, what I did. One of our greatest Olympians, all the Olympics you went to. And then, so how do you find out in London that you're going to get the biggest on? honour this country can bestow on an athlete really to carry the flag at, at, at an Olympic Games. Do you get a phone call? Does someone send you an email? Like, how does it work? Um, well, it's interesting. I had been injured, so I'd, I had this something going on in my back and in my hamstring and um, they'd had to give me an epidural. So the Australian team was over in France playing and they'd sent me back to the village to get this epidural so that I'd be able to play um during the olympics and um well yeah i was walking home from i think getting an x-ray or something home being back to our apartment in the village and nick um came up to me our chef de mission came up to me and said hey just if you don't mind just come back through my office um you know is this nick green yeah nick green okay. sorry <laughs> yeah um he's a legend um Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, God. He said, no, just come in the morning. Come in the morning to my office. I've got to talk to you about something. And I was like, what am I, like, am I not wearing the right uniform? Like, what have I done? Thinking that I'd probably <laughs> caused some trouble or said something or done something that was wrong. And anyway, so I probably didn't even sleep that night being worried that I was going to get in trouble for something that I hadn't even done. And I get into his office and he goes, he, I can't even, actually, I can't even really remember it, but I remember him saying, how would you like to be the flag bearer? And I, I looked at him and I was like, are you kidding? Or just didn't even cross my mind that it was a possibility that he would even ask me. In fact, I, to this day, I still don't know why he asked me. And I looked at him, I said, why? Why me? You know, like, and he just sort of said, well, actually, I don't even remember what he said. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I said, yeah, sure. I'd like to. And then I left. <laughs> that was it. And it's my absolute honour to announce that the flag bearer for the 2012 Australian Olympic team is Lauren Jackson. But he wanted to, he asked you because you're a multi-Olympian silver medalist, done everything you can to represent your country, played the sport the way it should be played, represented your country. 
in such a wonderful fashion, LJ, and so many people looked up to you as a leader and a role model and a wonderful athlete and a great person. That's why he wanted you to do it. Yeah. Oh, see, I didn't see that stuff. I just, like I said, I think every time I was called into the principal's office or coach's <laughs> office or any, I was normally in trouble for do, or I'd done something or said something that offended somebody or, you know, so I... Yeah, I just automatically jumped into that position of, yep, um, I've done something wrong. And then, yeah, he asked me and I was just blown away. And then I think, you know, that moment also, I think, changed me a little bit too moving forward. I think I sort of didn't, I, I started not expecting the worst out of everything, you know, every situation. So it's funny um, how how things like that kind of shape you moving forward. What was it like walking out there in London? It's a very big team. Yes, and very strong at swimming, led out, of course, by Lauren Jackson, three times silver medalist in basketball. I don't remember. All I remember was I was sweating under my armpits and I was trying not to lift my arms too high, so I was like this. Um, but I was sweating so badly and um, I was so... Um, nervous. I, I don't think I've ever been more nervous in my whole entire life, honestly. The places you've played basketball around the world, in Korea, in China, in Russia, which completely fascinates me, I'd love to talk to you about, in Spain. It's extraordinary, the places you've played. What was it like to go to Korea? You were there for, for one season and dominated over there. Um, like you are, as you've mentioned a couple of times, a pretty tall lady, and then you roll into Korea. Um, how is that? Uh, well, look, I, I think Korea, South Korea was probably one of my best experiences because um, I, I sort of I had an apartment um, and a driver and and then everybody. So South Korea, you didn't have to fly between games. So it's so small that obviously you just catch a bus. And, you know, I think the further, further furthest we went was about three hours. So it wasn't I, I didn't have to worry about flying, which was which is an amazing thing. And then. Um, yeah, I, I had a great time. Uh, we all, all the foreigners from the men's and the women's league, we'd all meet up in Taiwan after every game. Um, we had just hangouts, pool, you know, play pool. Um, we'd eat beautiful food down there. I made some friends that are still, that I still think are, you know, everything now. Um, so I actually had one of my best experiences ever playing in South Korea. It was a really great time in my life and, um yeah, and I played good basketball too. I got super fit over there. Um, yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> did did you, any of your teammates speak English? Like how do you go through the language barrier? The language barrier is interesting because, yeah, that was a, I think that might be why I enjoyed it so much because I didn't actually understand what the coach was saying. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure. No, I'm, I'm dead serious because, you know, like different styles of basketball, um, and then, I mean, there were times too where like cultural differences, um, the way that they would treat the athletes and, and there's just stuff that you would never even see over here in Australia. And In what way? Uh, well, like we had to play um, some boys, like so, like probably sort of 19, 20-year-old boys in, in games and the coach would line them up on the, and if he was mad at them, he'd knock them on their head, just here, knock them. Like... <laughs> And then, I mean, but I've seen stuff in, in countries where like, I've seen, uh, I don't even know if I should be talking about this stuff, but I've seen um, one of my teammates get slapped 
you know, and I'm not going to say where it was, but I've seen stuff and I'm just like, holy, you know, like you can't do that. So I think not understanding the language is not such a bad thing because basketball is basketball and I would just go out and play, you know. If he wasn't in my ear about something, then I, you know, I could just go and be who I was and play, play my own game and get fit and get strong. And I really got to focus on myself as well. Back to LJ in Atik. Last week on the show, we featured a man who has had an incredible journey in the world game, both as a player and now coach, Kevin Musket. So, so how do you, you just mentioned the multicultural nature of your side. Yeah. How do you deliver a message and, and a theory and a way forward when you've got yeah. a, a Korean and local blokes in Flemish yeah. and Portuguese and Spanish and yeah. oh, this is not easy from a boy no. from the western suburbs of Melbourne. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm multilingual helps, <laughs> but, it's, but it's not me. I'm not. Right, <laughs> right. so it'd it be good, help. but it's not yeah. you. Yeah, it would help. Um, I, I think... <laughs> It, all it's done, I mean, uh, I remember doing some stuff uh, through my through my courses and about uh, and, and and doing another course where you know we all learn differently. You know, everyone can retain information uh, uh, some way in some way, but uh, possibly not the way that uh, you're doing it. You know, verbally, visually, all those different things. Where I just look at it now and go, okay, well, I've got a greater challenge because now I've got. Another way because uh, of pe- because of language, the language barrier. So, mm. you know, I've increased uh, the amount of video that we do as a collective. Um, you know, there's you know, translators around, but uh, the translators again, you know, you lose a little bit of. Um, Oh, no, you, lo- you lose something when someone's trans- it's like Chinese intricacy. Yeah, you, you lose, and then you know all of a sudden you're you know you're really fucking vocal and you're going, and then the translator and he's so calm, <laughs> he delivers it. So you lose in the, the delivery. You know, de- <laughs> delivery is half the half the thing because yes. you know you, you get someone up and about because you know you're enthusiastic, and then the translator saying, "You go, mate, he's about to fall over, mate," because you know he's just doing. <laughs> And I go, well, so, so I, I realised quickly that's not working. And, uh... That's Kevin Musket on episode 98 of the show. Alrighty, back to Lauren Jackson. Russia, I'm fascinated. I went there for the Winter Olympics. When was that, back in 2014? I found a fascinating place. I would love to see more of it. I pretty much went from the village to Sochi, as you know, what the Olympic experience can be like. How do you end up in Russia you tell me this story because this is this fascinates me going to play basketball in Russia. Well, that's a really long story, and I have to like edit bits out because I I'm actually not allowed to talk about some of it. Um, but I ended up going over there early on um, in 2000, and so Shabtai was the owner of uh, the club that I played for in Moscow. But he, a lot of people don't know that he actually flew me over for a one-month stint in 2003. Um, I think I averaged about eight minutes a game and he paid me 100 grand. Um, wow. That's a good deal. Yeah. It was, And then after that, he sort of said, if you ever play in Europe, you're playing for me. And I was like, sure, no worries, you know, if you're going to pay me this sort of money. Um, why not? So, and I mean, you know, we flew private jets over there and he, you know, would do anything that we asked and I thought, oh, this is a nice lifestyle, but it is Russia and and I wasn't quite ready at that stage to go over. So two years, three years later, I decided to go and play in South Korea Um, and my teammate Sue Bird was playing for his team at this stage Um, and she, I guess, had sort of said, you know, come on over um, for the last month 
Um, so I'd finished my, my time in South Korea. We, I think we had just lost the championship in like game five or something. And um, Shabtai said, come over, I'll pay you to just be here for the month um, like I did last time. So I did. And I didn't play a lot, but for whatever reason, he was happy. And then he offered me another contract the following year. So that's how I got back over there. Um, and then that's how I got caught up in that little that that world, which was um, what is that world? Oh, just different, another different experience. Um, playing basketball in Russia was definitely something that just you know took. It was just a whole different level of, again, a different culture. Oh, there was, I, I don't know, it was just a different, a very different experience. Reading about it in your book, eventually the, the guy you're talking about was murdered, yeah? Yeah, so um, he was in 2009, um, I, I think it was actually Melbourne Cup Day, so when shocking crime scene, shocking and then crime scene. Yeah. Yeah, right. so that was the day, yeah, it was, it was so bizarre. <laughs> anyway, um so Shabtai, he ex KGB spy. He um, had been. He was a spy. Yes, yeah, very, right. very intelligent man. Just um, uh, his stories, his life. You can actually go on Wikipedia and look at it. He um, had a book and everything, and he, his way was. That's just how he knew how to, you know, be. And so, what what was his way? Shabtai's way. <laughs> Right. He could do whatever he wanted to do, you know, and nobody could say otherwise. Like he just, he, he would treat, he treated me very well. And I, w- I was living with two of my teammates, Sue Bird and Diana Tarasi. And um, he treated us really well. He, um, you know, he'd f- fly us on private jets on holidays. He would um, buy us diamonds. He would, you know, take us to Chanel and give us his credit card. Like he just would, he'd, it was that, like, he would do everything to try and make us comfortable and he really um, spoiled, spoiled us, you know. Um, and it was completely out of this world. So um, I, I sort of went through a really big growing phase here and I think this is part of my life where I decided to go back to university and study gender studies because there is um, a very big cultural difference and, you know, as as a woman over there, um, I did I did feel a little bit owned by him. Injuries. What what does what do injuries mean to you? Um, I, I spoke to you on the radio. Oh, I think just before you were going to retire, and I remember you telling me what you were going through with your body, and I was like, "Wow, that's um, that's beyond the pale." Yeah. Um, so I, like I started my career pretty early. Um, and I, because I was so tall as well, I, I always sort of struggled with shin splints and I, I don't know why, but, um, as I started playing more basketball, I started getting stress fractures and things like that. So that was early on. Um, you know, I broke my ankle in America. I didn't know I'd broken it in 2002. Um, so I, I had probably two weeks off and then I played an entire season on that. And then by the time that had finished, that season had finished. Um, we were at the world championships over in China and I got, I've, um, got another stress fracture in my leg just because I'd been compensating for so long. 
So that happened and that's when I found out um, with bone scans and stuff that I'd actually fractured my ankle then. And then um, so that was my first operation or my second. No, my first one was my shoulder. Sorry. I, we could go for days talking about injuries. but How many operations would you have had? Well, and truly over 30. Easy. Wow. Easy. Um, so hence the reason my memory is so bad probably. <laughs> um so in 2009, so when Shabtai was actually murdered, I had fractured my back over in America. So we, I was playing a game uh, against Atlanta and I was standing on the free throw line. Ball goes up. I went up for a rebound, landed, and I felt my back crunch. And I was like, oh, something's happened here. But anyway, finished out the rest of the game. Um, we're in the locker room. I think we lost the game and our coach was just going berserk at us. And... I was sitting there and I went to move forward and my back just like something happened. I was just like, oh, my God, I've done something here, you know. Anyway, I ended up playing three or four more games. Um, and, I mean, I was – I had to take a lot of painkillers um, and I kept saying there's something wrong, there's something wrong. Like get an X-ray, do whatever you have to do, there's something wrong. Anyway, finally went and got a bone scan um, and they found – two fractures um, in my lower back. And oh. that was the end of that season. But I was meant to be going straight back to Russia after the WNBL season, uh, WNBA season, sorry, in America. So I went back to Australia and I rehabbed at the AIS um, in Canberra. And anyway, this is when Shabtai, um, he got assassinated. Um, and they, they found like, $10 million in his trunk and like AKs and everything in the boot of his car. Um, wow. And also too, when you see the pictures of, cause it, it was in the daily telegraph, I think, but when you see the pictures of the crime scene, he, um, the way that he was murdered, cause he had a bulletproof car and he will always talk about this bulletproof car, but there was apparently there's like a vulnerable part in the corner window. And so if you like shoot through that, like you can get in and that's exactly where all the bullets went through. And it was, but he was actually going to pick up some of my teammates from his office in Moscow at the time to take them to a concert. So yeah, that was, that was interesting. And then I flew straight to Israel for his funeral. Um, and then after that made the decision to come back and play in Canberra after my rehab was done. So that was probably the best decision I'd ever made because like I got really fit. I got to play a season with Canberra again, who I love. Canberra was my team in the WNBL here. And um, we won the championship uh, and it was just a, a really great way for me to sort of reconnect with Australia. I started university um, and then, yeah, I got older and my injuries started kicking in. So after that, um, my hips went. I had probably three operations on both of my hips. Um my, I had a hamstring problem, sciatic nerve problem, um, had surgery on that. And then my knee blew out in China. So, and then I had about 15 operations on my knee to try and get me back for Rio. And then, uh, and then I, I couldn't get back and I got a really bad infection in it. I was in hospital for two weeks and that was it. That was when, yeah, that's when I had to call it a day. And how was that? To be honest, because I'd been going through the stuff with my knee for so long um, and, like I said, it was operation after operation and then I'd start training and I'd re-injure it um, and then it started getting arthritic and stuff as well. So it happened. It really degenerated quite quickly. Um, I think because of what I had to go through and what I'd been putting my body through for those probably two or three years, um, I think I was ready and I felt relief 
when, because I said to the doctors at AIS, you know, I'm not going to be able to tell, like, I'm not going to be able to quit. Like, I can't say that I'm done. You're going to have to tell me. And so they said, right, we'll have a meeting next week. And they told me and I was like, well, that's it. You know, that's all said and done. It's a day. So that was my, that was the career. Is it worth it? I think probably from, from 2000 and sort of 11 onwards, um, it was really, really difficult because with the injuries came a lot of prescription medication um, and it was just a really bad cycle that I was in. And um, Can you tell me about that? Well, yeah, I just, uh, because I was in so much pain, um, I was taking quite a lot of medication um, and then just to get through games, to get through trainings. Um, and, I mean, I kept going until I couldn't go anymore, you know. Um, and then the knee injury actually kept me like off the court. So I was rehabbing and training and training and training. Um, I needed obviously something to help me get through the pain. And it it became a really vicious cycle, you know, and, and one that every day I sort of look back and I just think, think, wow, I'm just so lucky to get through it and I'm so lucky I'm alive. How do you break the cycle? Well, I retired. I had a knee replacement or a half knee replacement and um, my mum my mum and dad took time away from their home over on the South coast and came back. And I just said, I'm done, like get me off everything. And they stayed with me for three weeks and I couldn't get out of bed for two of them. Um, I had the shivers, I had the shakes, I, you know, and that was it. And I made the decision that, you know, I'm going to take every opportunity that comes my way by, you know, um, to try and upskill. I'm going to try and have a family um, and, and I did, and I did everything I needed to do. And I thank my parents every single day. So the discussions about mental health, Lauren, again, this is for you to talk about what relates to you and don't talk about things that make you feel uncomfortable. Where do you sit on mental health and athletes? And, you know, you've gone through a pretty tough journey along the way there. There's been some massive highs, which I want to talk to you about now, but it's pretty tough times as well. Yeah. Well, um, where do I sit on it now? I think everyone needs to take time to really check in and, and understand where they're at. Cause I think without knowing, um, you can fall victim to mental health. Like it's, it can happen. You don't even know it's happening. So, and that, that was what it was like for me for a period of time. And then, you know, circumstances just, I kept like, I was so concerned about my physical health that I didn't even, I wasn't thinking about what was happening up, up top. So, yeah, I think it's really important. I think it's um, for everybody, particularly athletes, because I think that there comes a time in every athlete's life where they're not an athlete anymore and they've got to find a way to cope and move on and move through transition. And um, and and that obviously is probably the biggest part of it. So, you know, for me, my story, um, I, I was on, on antidepressants for quite a long period of my career as well. Um, and with with everything else so it I like I said I, I feel very fortunate that I had my mum and dad to sort of help guide me through it and and help me get out of it because if I didn't have them helping me at the end of my career when it was all said and done I like I said I don't know whether I would have made it through so so with all your amazing achievements on the basketball court we talked about the Olympics and the silver medals and bronze medals and 
I've lost track of how many titles you won. There's in America. Um, how many titles have you won locally in the WNBL? It must be six or seven or? Yeah, I think six. Okay, six. Yeah, world champion. We didn't even talk about uh, the world championship in 2006 when you beat the Russ and, and you were captain. Like, you, you, like your resume is out of control. There's MVPs all over the shop here. On the basketball court, what's your fondest memory? Of all those amazing experiences and fantastic victories you had, it's a hard question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I've got a lot of fond memories from being on the court. The basketball court was a place where I was most comfortable in the world. It was just when I was off the court I really struggled. Um, I'd say, look, I, I said that South Korea was probably my favourite Um season, you know, outside of America or Australia. Um, I think 2004 and 2010 championships were awesome. But again, it came with its issues off the court. But I think the on-court stuff that the teammates um, and the camaraderie that I had with with some of those girls was just something that I'll remember forever. Um, And those friendships, you know, I think will sustain me for the rest of my life. So, I think it's more about um, the journey with the people um, and and that makes, you know, the celebration, it makes the, you know, the winning so much greater because if you're doing it on your own, it just doesn't feel like it. Uh, to me, it doesn't feel like it would be as enjoyable. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, look, I think uh, 2010 WNBL Championship was awesome. I had that was great. Uh, the World Championship, gold. Yeah, there's been so many incredible moments and they've all been special for one reason or another. How have you seen the progression? Now, this is a question that we could do a four-hour podcast on, but I'm not (laughs) going to make you sit through that because you've been great with your time. How do you see the progression in your time of women's sport and how it's viewed, how it's reported on, how the salaries are? and how it's going into the future now. And it's going to be a really interesting time for all sport, but including that women's sport with what's happening with COVID and shrinking budgets. How are we tracking? I don't know how other sports are doing uh, right now. Um, but I know, like like you said, there's not one uh, organisation that isn't feeling co- the effects of COVID. Um I'm hoping that women's sport, the trajectory keeps going upwards. I think that uh, we've been gaining so much traction and and so much momentum behind it. It's um, been incredible just to see some of the, some of, we've got some household female athlete names now in this country, like more than one, you know. Yes. So, um, you know, it's it is a really exciting time. Um, I think that you know uh, there's still a ways to go. Absolutely. Um, and and how that sort of happens um, coming out of this period, I, I don't know. But I know for basketball, I know we're in a really great situation. We've got the 2022 World Cup coming. Um, obviously, Tokyo is next year now. So, And the WNBL is sort of taking off. Our National League is starting to take off a little bit, which is exciting as well. So I feel like um, the sport that I love and the sport that I care about is is sort of going places. So that, to me, is is really exciting. And the WNBL has been around for... This is, this is going to be the 41st season. So, you know, we were playing uh, before professional women's sport was even a thing. And um, so, yeah, it's it's a really exciting time for us. And exciting times for Lauren Jackson. What's the next 10 years? 
Like, what's it about? What's going to make you happy? What are you looking forward to? Oh, I think every day makes me happy now, you know, just knowing that I've got these two little gorgeous, and I never thought I'd be the mother of two boys, but I tell you what, it's been the best thing ever for me. It's, again, it's um, changed my opinions and my, my views, and I was a bit of a raging feminist, and I still am an absolute raging feminist. I'm proud of it, but um, it's beautiful knowing that the two two things that I care most about in my life are these two magnificent little boys that I'm trying to raise. So it's, um, oh man, that sorry, that next 10 years, it's about them. It's my kids, you know, and then obviously my job, which I love. I love being an administrator. Um, I'm learning every day. Um, I just, I'm so thankful that I've been given the opportunity um, from Basketball Australia to sort of upskill and grow in the role. And um, yeah, I just, like I said, I, 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 I feel very fortunate and lucky um, my career and my life has progressed the way that it has because to be here and to be who I am today, I'm, I just couldn't be happier or more thankful. And so when people come up to you now and want to talk to you about basketball and look up, um, what's the best way to say this? I'm, a, I'm an enormous fan of you. And what's it like when people come up and want to tell you that stuff now? Oh, it's like, it's lovely. You know, it's, it's really sweet. I, um, I think now though, I just, like I said before, I just have a duty to be the best version of myself that I can be because I do have a platform and, and people are watching and particularly my kids. And I just feel like, um, you don't realize this until you get older and you have your own kids, but the, um, impact that we have as athletes, I think is so, um, so important, you know, and, and I just hope that, um, I can, and do justice to that. I've no doubt. I've no doubt you do justice to it. Final question for you. We've mentioned kids a lot. We're lucky to have a lot of kids listen to this show, Lauren, with their parents. Um, they might be on the way to basketball or footy or cricket or, maths class or debating and and they want to be the best that they can be at the thing that they love and this question always has more weight when you're a parent and I understand that now if you had one bit of advice you could give to a youngster growing up that wants to achieve something with their life what would it be look I think follow your dreams like I I think that's you know the first bit of advice and I, I mean it's a bit cliche but it's true like if you've got a dream you can achieve it um, but you've got to believe it. You've, you've really got to believe it. But then my second bit of advice is too, you can't lose sight of the fact that you're a child either. Like you need to have fun. If you're not enjoying something, go and find something else to do. Like, you know, kids, you're young once, you've got to make the most of it. And I think that's how a lot of, you know, your foundations are, are built, you know, by things that you try and do as a kid. So just enjoy life, you know. I'm going to embarrass you and I'm going to embarrass myself now and I'll be embarrassed when I listen back to this now. But I, I need to tell you anyway, I think um, when you get to my age in life, you don't have many heroes, but you're a real hero to me because I think what you've done is quite incredible. So I'm really pumped you had a chat with me and um, I've loved watching your career and good luck going forward with basketball and being a mum and you've just done so much for this country. It's a wonderful thing you've done, Lauren. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well done. A lot, a lot to digest in that episode. Thanks to Lauren for making some time in her busy schedule of work and being a super mum to have a chat. 
As you've just heard, I have been a fan of LJ for a long, long time, even more so now knowing some more of her story in depth. I hope you all took something from it as well. Well done to Das, who, pains me to say it, beat me at golf the other day. It was only a par three course, it was raining. I don't need excuses though. I'll get the kid next time. As always, he nailed this episode. Thanks for listening. As always, I really appreciate it. Until next Thursday with episode 100, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.